uh, my mission is to expose Americans to challenging things, to get them out of their comfort zone and help them go home with the most beautiful souvenir, and that's a broader perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of The Low Season, a podcast about tour guides, tourism, and the future of travel. My name is Wouter Bernhardt, a tour guide from Berlin, and today I'm joined by travel writer, activist, television personality, business director, and all-round travel guru, Rick Steves. Now, if you don't know Rick Steves and you're not entirely up to date with the who's who in the tourism industry, Rick Steves is a big name. He's been in the travel business for over 40 years, sells about a million guidebooks annually, has a travel business that helps 30,000 Americans to discover Europe every single year, and is well known, especially in the United States, for his TV series, Rick Steves Europe, which has been running for about 20 years now. An impressive resume, but I think most important is to understand Rick through his travel philosophy. He's an activist when it comes to traveling and firmly believes that his fellow Americans should broaden their perspectives by traveling the world. Maybe get off their high horse a little bit and realize that they're only 4% of the entire world population. This episode was a collaboration with the Berlin Guides Association. The conversation was originally a video call and about an hour in length, though I cut it down a little bit. Also on the original call was the president of the association, Matt Robison, with whom I dove a little bit more into Berlin history and the art of tour guiding. If you're interested in watching the full hour video conference, I've put a link up in the show notes. Without further ado, I present to you Rick Steves from his house in Edmonds, Washington. Now you run an American travel business aimed at Americans that are curious about the world. Uh, Sam Anderson in his New York Times article from last year uh, called you a sort of spiritual travel agent for America's curious but hesitant middle class. And would you say that's an accurate representation? Yeah, he's brilliant and he nailed it. That's pretty much exactly what I like to do. So why have you always thought that um, travel is so important for especially this group of travelers? Uh, you know, it just reminded me, I used to be a piano teacher. The only other work I've ever had other than tour guiding and my related work in travel is teaching piano. And I was never a great pianist, but I love music and I love to play the piano. And I was really good at taking kids that didn't want Bach and Beethoven and all they wanted to do was play pop music. And I was really good at getting them in there and uh, turning them on to the, to the beauties of classical music. And uh, uh, it's kind of like, um, travel. I, I really want to take the biggest market segment. I don't want to be for sophisticates. I don't want to be for gourmets. I don't want to be for scholars. I just want to be for curious, good, um, open-minded people that want to broaden their life through travel. And I want to make travel accessible. Uh, for me, people talk about accessibility in terms of wheelchairs. But I think of accessibility as just, can people get that into their brains? How can we organize it in a way where people, where that can be accessible to them? I have a, a sort of an ethic in my TV show of never showing anything on TV that all of my viewers can't do also. A lot of TV hosts will show things that nobody else can do, but they can do because they got a big camera. Uh, I just don't even bother. If somebody says, you want to do this, nobody else can do it. I say no. This show is about accessibility. I want to show what other people can do and then equip and inspire them to do that themselves so they have the, the great travel experience. 
Now, your company made it possible for, uh, I think, about 30,000 Americans to travel through Europe last year. Um, how did you react to the news that the pandemic was sweeping through Europe first, uh, eventually through the United States, like right at the beginning of the tour season? Like, what did that mean, for example, for all those people that had already booked? Well, it was devastating. Um, it was, uh, we were euphoric. I had 100 wonderful guides. I think a lot of them in, from Berlin, in my living room here, a hundred of us, you know, just, if you get a hundred guides together from 20 different countries and you're all excited about the best, you're coming off of the best year ever, you're going to have a better year next year. We were just, we had just finished a one week long workshop where we're all sharing notes and, and making sure we, we had our act together for this year's travel. And we had already sold 24,000 uh, seats for tours for 2020. We were 80% sold out and we just barely started. Um, it was going to be an awesome year. And then, uh, and then uh, it just swept over us like a tsunami. All of a sudden, nobody's traveling and we're all unemployed. Uh, that was, not, that was pretty, pretty disappointing. But I'm, I'm sitting right here looking out over my town and I can see all sorts of institutions that are in just as difficult straits as us. So I'm really careful not to be um, feeling like, oh, life is difficult for me. You know, we're all pretty blessed people. We're privileged people. Um, and uh, right now, and for years, we've been having good years. And now we have a bad year. So we have to play the cards that are dealt us. Uh, so I'm not, I've just had a talk with myself when this broke out. I'm not going to get depressed. I'm just going to keep a positive attitude. Patience is my middle name lately. You know, everybody is kind of chomping at the bit. People are eating in bubbles in Amsterdam now so they can sit on a canal and not get infected. I'm not that eager to go back to Amsterdam to sit in a bubble when I eat. Um, so it's really heartbreaking. And it's it's not heartbreaking for me, except I'm not making any money. I mean, that's a shame, you know. Uh, I was enjoying that. Uh, but much, much more important to me was I was introducing a lot of people to Europe. Uh, to For me to know that with the confidence I have in my guides, to know that 30,000 Americans could go to Europe and second degree or whatever, they would be my travelers because my guides do in their countries a better job than I could. And for me to be able to collect these people and say, have a Rick Steves travel experience and here, you know, travel with this guy or that guy or this guy in these different countries. Guides that you've had on your podcast, you know, Paul in Norway and Francesca in Rome and uh, uh, our friends right in Berlin. That is the biggest joy for me. Uh, and then also a big part of my work is not just the tour company, but it's the guidebooks. We probably sell a million guidebooks a year. So that's quite a bit bigger impact than 30,000 tourists. Um, we have 50 different guidebooks. I think 25 out of the top 30 American guidebooks for traveling in Europe had Rick Steves on the cover. And uh, we really are committed to having good guidebooks to help Americans travel. Um, and the thought that guidebook sales would just go to right into the ground. It's just one minute you're breaking your records and the next minute you're sitting on thousands of guidebooks that you thought you were going to sell and what are you going to do with them? Uh, so that's from a business point of view, pretty depressing. Uh, but uh, what are you going to do? You know, so we're just, we're just going to wait until we get through this crisis. In 1979, you wrote the book uh, Europe Through the Back Door. Uh, it outlines your philosophy on independent travel and local experiences, uh, experiences that are maybe not entirely just the Eiffel Tower or the Brandenburg Gate. 
1979, Berlin was still heavily divided. No one had, of course, any idea that 10 years later the Berlin Wall would come down. Uh, was Berlin in any sense part of the Europe you were writing about in 1979? Oh, absolutely. I loved traveling uh, around Europe on both sides of the wall. It is interesting, Americans in the old days, like when I started traveling, there was still a lot of people with PTSD from World War II in the beer halls in Munich, I think, you know. And um, in the old days, we had a very strong affinity for Bavaria, I think, because that was the American sector, right? And Munich was the darling of American uh, travel dreams, along with Heidelberg. Uh, but I'm more of a historian, and I, I, I just love, you know, modern European history and uh, German history. And uh, Berlin has always been on my radar. But in the last generation, Berlin has become a much, much more rewarding place to visit to me than, than uh, Munich. Um, and, uh, and Berlin, uh, at the same time, Berlin has changed, obviously, more than any city I've traveled to in Europe. Uh, example, the first TV show I made on Berlin, if you looked at the script, probably the vast majority of the text was in former West Berlin and it was Kudam and Zoo Station centered. When I went back with my new script to do Berlin a couple of years ago, I don't think we did anything in the former West out of the whole script. I don't even think we went over to KDV or whatever, you know. Um, it was just a total turnaround, uh, and it just kind of, the proof was the core of Berlin from a sightseeing point of view was not the Berlin Americans knew until 19. 89. Um, and then it took a while for Americans to get comfortable with going into the East because there was all this kind of uh, ruined pub sort of culture and so on, which uh, I found really fun. Uh, but it's not exactly what your typical mainstream American tourist is looking for. But uh, Berlin's a challenge. Berlin's rewarding. Berlin is, for me, the number one destination in Germany now. It was uh, very interesting to hear your commencement speech uh, to the class of 2020. I think you've put it up uh, on, on YouTube in May, I believe. You had a very important message to them, to this new class of 2020. Uh, also quite interesting is that you refer to an, an element, a period, a moment in, in German history, um, the opening of the renewed, renovated Reichstag in 1999. You, you were present for that opening. Could you maybe uh, talk a little bit about what that was like? Well, what, what do I say? I say this in my class all the time in my travel as a political act talk. Um, I just say, uh, what do I say? Um, oh, that when you're traveling, you, you're part of history. You, you, you're there, you're surrounded by history, and you've got to recognize that history is not something you read in, in books. It's, it's happening all around us, and, and we are uh, players in it. And uh, when you travel, you have this amazing opportunity to, to, to be in the midst of it. And uh, example, I was on the top of the Reichstag building in Germany uh, on opening day, and uh, you know this is a building that has a very uh, interesting history uh, over the last century in Germany. And... Uh, uh, for a generation, it was, well, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this idea that Russians and, and Germans were fighting on the rooftop of the parliament building and so on, and that's quite dramatic. And then all of a sudden, the war is over, Germany is divided, the capital goes to Bonn, and uh, the former parliament building is a bombed-out hulk sitting on no man's land, Berlin Wall. Suddenly, the Cold War is over, Germany is united again, capital goes back to Berlin, they need a new capital building. What do you do? In good European style, you don't bulldoze the old building, you renovate it and you incorporate on the top a beautiful modern element, the glass dome. 
and you open it to the public. Beautiful thing. So designed for German citizens, but tourists are welcome to walk that spiral ramp to the very top and look down literally over the shoulders of the legislators and see what's going on in their desk. Powerful architectural symbolism as Germany's been uh, jerked around by its politicians too much in the last century now. I think this is a statement. German citizens are going to keep an eye on their uh, legislators, on their, on their governors. Um, and I was on top of that building on opening day, sounded, surrounded by teary-eyed Germans. And then I always get a laugh out of this in my, in my lectures. I select to a thousand people. Anytime you're surrounded by teary-eyed Germans, something exceptional is going on. <laughs> and, and then this was the, and many of those teary eyes were old enough to remember Berlin when it was just rubble in the late 1940s, you see. And this was the beautiful emotional moment when there was no more communism, no more fascism. So I have to talk to right-wingers and left-wingers. You know, some people are glad there's no more fascism. Others come focus on the communism. So no more communism, no more fascism. The United country starting a new century with a new capital building, united, looking forward into a beautiful, promising future. And to this day, Germany is a leading power in the European Union. I said, I just get excited even talking about it right now, just explaining it as a teacher to teacher to you guys. Um, but that's a, a, a beautiful moment. And, and, and then the lesson for me is, I was with other Americans up there who didn't have a clue. They were not touched by it. They didn't notice those tears. They didn't understand the context. They were just bummed out because the air conditioning was not working or they wanted a ice, ice cubes in their Coca-Cola or their batteries were running out. And I just thought, I'm living in a dumbed-down society. I don't want to live in a dumbed-down society. And there's powerful people in the United States that would find it convenient and more profitable if we were all just dumbed down, mindless producer-consumers. And I vowed right then and there in my own little world as a travel writer and a tour guide that I'm going to expect my travelers, my viewers, my readers to be smartened up, to be engaged. And I'm not going to dumb them down. You make more money when you take people to the beach and just frequent flyer miles and fun in the sun. But that's not what I do. Uh, my mission is to expose Americans to challenging things, to get them out of their comfort zone and help them go home with the most beautiful souvenir. And that's a broader perspective. And that's how I measure my profit. You see, so, and then I, I mentioned, uh, I'm really sad in the United States that we, we don't seem to value the importance of a, of a well-educated electorate. And I really have this sense that Germany has played the consequences of having uh, an electorate that, that could be uh, led astray. And uh, I really find that in Germany, there's an interest in investing in people's education, not as a political agenda to, to teach them this way or that way, but just to teach them to be good citizens. That makes the country stronger, regardless of your, where you fall in the political spectrum. And this is something I like to bring up. And, and this is a very good, concrete example of the value of travel, what we can learn from our travels. And for me, as a tour guide and a teacher, and I know that my guides, I've got 150 guides that in good times earn a lot of their living taking Rick Steves. So somebody's got to guide those 30,000 Americans around Europe. We all believe in this value of exposing Americans to the realities of this planet so they can realize that they are 4% of the planet and there's 96% out there and it's nice to get to know the neighbors. Um, you know, I was just thinking the other day, if I could do the most profitable tour, it would be taking 20, not just 25 Americans around Europe, but taking 25 people that would go to a Trump rally around Europe. I would love to have 20, it's not the kind of people I'd want to hang out with, but as a teacher, as a tour guide, what I would really love the opportunity to do is have 25 people out of that Trump rally. You see them, they're the people behind Trump when he talks, you know. Take them to Europe 
and let them talk to Germans, let them talk to people in Berlin, let them go to, let's sit with my relatives in Scandinavia and, and understand why they believe in government, you know, uh, go to Spain and Italy and, and uh, enjoy the Passagata and the Paseo, uh, you know, uh, hike to the Alps and talk about the environment. Uh, uh, that would be such a, such a thrill. And, and that's to a certain degree what we do is we ex get Americans out of their comfort zone with great local guides, European, mostly European guides who can speak with authority. Over the last couple of years, we feel that uh, maybe not only in the US, but also here in Europe, that the political climate has changed quite severely, that uh, opinions have become very polarized, like diametrically opposed to each other. Um, those things are also coming up on tour when, when you're talking about uh, especially in Berlin, 20th century history. Uh, it's it's difficult matter um, that invokes all kinds of ideas in people and, and people are, are using some of these ideas for their own political benefit. That can in turn lead to conflict on tours. Uh, is, is there any way that you have, do you have any policy or do you talk about it with your guides to mitigate conflict on tours? Um, especially when we're talking about a very difficult uh, 20th century matter, and especially during this quite difficult political climate? Yeah, well, this is, for me, I, I've been, for 25 years, I led tours. And it was endlessly entertaining for me. I could do four of my best. I just did the best of Europe tour normally over and over, 20 days, you know, all around the best. And uh, it was always interesting for me because the challenge, how transformational can I make this tour? How, how can I get people out of their comfort zone? And, and how can I help them learn? How can I fast track their learning? And, um, but you got to be careful not to abuse the bully pulpit. And you don't accomplish anything by cornering somebody in a, in a concentration camp and hitting them on the head with history. You know, you've, you've got to set them up and, and let them explore and draw their own conclusions. So that's an art. But I've got the mic and I've got 25 Americans who are paying me to be their guide for three weeks and I'm running around Europe and I get to shape the curriculum every day I'm on that mic. And I know that my bus is half uh, conservatives and half liberals, half Democrats, half Republicans. Good people, there's no doubt about it. They're good people that just have a different worldview and a different politics. So I don't, I don't judge them. Uh, I, I just want to help teach them in an effective way. And I've, I, it's just been a personal challenge for me ever since the start is, how can I be a more effective teacher? And I've learned that people have to draw their own conclusions. You can't tell them what to think. I've also learned that if you are a traveler, if you enjoy escargot, if you like to speak a foreign language, uh, if you really believe that uh, America is not exceptional in God's eyes, you're at a disadvantage with a lot of conservatives because they think God blesses America first, you know. So you've got to win them over. You don't want them to slam the door on you like a lot of people would, and they'd never get to first base with them. So um, I have learned as a tour guide that it's important for me to acknowledge that I'm glad I'm running my business in the United States, where I can be nimble, where I can employ people uh, easily and then uh, uh, run my business the way I want to, where I can turn on a dime, where I don't have a lot of restrictions. And then I even mentioned that I, I'm glad I'm not running my business in Europe because it would be con too constraining for me. I couldn't be that guerrilla entrepreneur. And I, you know, I say, I just love the challenge of, of working hard, creating a good product, making a lot of money and paying my staff well and giving a good value to my customers. Okay, right now, all of those um, 
all of those cynical conservatives are going, oh, maybe he's one of us, you know? And then I let them know that I'm a, a Christian and I, I, I love going to church and that's kind of, oh, okay, he's another, that's a nice thing. And then I also, um, I remind them that the world is thankful for America standing up for freedom with our military. And that, uh, you know, I tell them a story about how going, I went to a castle in France, a little mom and pop chateau, and they wouldn't let us shoot our camera in the castle until they brought out, and gave us wine and cheese and brought out their 48 star American flag. And this is the flag we raised over our community the day the American troops freed us from, from Nazi tyranny, you know. Uh, and, you know, Europe to this day is thankful that America uh, had the courage and the commitment to freedom to, to, to save Europe and that we waged a battle of economic attrition with the Soviet Union. And today, uh, Europe is free and certain, to a certain degree because of American strength and commitment to freedom and power. Um, so all of that stuff, then, they, then, you, then you realize, they realize you're not a crackpot in their perspective. It's really important. It sounds like I'm just kissing up maybe or something like that. But I think it's a, a real reasonable thing to acknowledge. And it's very effective because then people will listen to you. And, uh, and then it's a growing experience. And you see the growing pains of a broadening perspective over the course of that tour. And when you get done, those people do fly home with the souvenir that I want them to fly home with. And that's a respect for Europe, a respect for people who see and do things differently. And what I love to do, and I've learned that from taking uh, educational tours down into Latin America over the years, is have these reflection times where the guide is not the teacher, but the guide is the honest conduit that just translates and facilitates the group meeting with different people. And when I did that in Central America, you would meet with people with all sorts of different perspectives. And the, the guide would facilitate that, and the people would process that, and then they would make their own decision. But when I, when I work with my guides, I encourage them to talk politics and talk religion. I think it's a beautiful thing to talk about if it's done respectfully. Now, you often mention in your podcast that this virus will pass and we will soon all return to normal. Um, do you really believe that? Do you really think the virus will pass soon? And also, do you believe that things will return to normal? Well, I hope that very strongly. Um, I, this is more serious than what I thought going into it. Uh, it's going to take longer than what I hoped. Uh, it's, it's occurring to me that we're probably more reliant on a vaccine than, than I realized. But I do think we're going to get a vaccine. And, uh, but I, there's, the odd thing about this is there's no way of knowing its trajectory. There's no way of knowing how bad it's going to get or how long it's going to last. That's the first time I've had anything hinting like that in my career. And it is um, easy to lay in bed in the morning thinking, oh, I got to get out of bed and work today. And uh, are we ever going to come out of this? But you know, I'm keeping 100 people on my payroll, not because I want to have an employment service. I mean, I have an ethical responsibility, I think, to keep them employed as long as I can. But there's also, I've got an interest in having a, a team in place for when we come out of this so we can rekindle our tour company. Um, and uh, if I didn't believe that we'd come out of it, I don't think I would be so committed to the well-being of my company right now. If somebody, if I believe deep down inside there's not going to be any more organized tours in the future, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now as the head of uh, Rick Steves Europe, which has 100 people on their payroll. Uh, you've been 
heralded and and I think rightfully so for continuing to pay your office staff out of your own pocket, especially in a time that many other tour companies were either letting go of people or firing and rehiring among the yeah sort of the the the, the panic around the pandemic. Um, there's of course also the situation with the guides, uh, mostly freelancers living all throughout Europe with very different security situations in terms of unemployment benefits. Now, do, do you think that in the future or the sort of the post-pandemic tourism future, uh, there is room for uh, maybe an employed guide? Or do you think that the model in tourism, the, the way we know it with tour operators, um, simply doesn't lend itself for anything other than freelancers? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, it seems to me guiding is freelancing. Guides do work here. They do work there. It's seasonal. You know, I, I know a lot of people here do, um, you know, summer sports in the summer and winter sports in the winter, and they cobble it together. A lot of guides want to work half the year. Um, a lot of guides, it's their primary source of income. Um, I'm not, I'm different, I think, than a Contiki or a Globus or Cosmos, we're just we're we're a, a travel company that takes people around Europe. We write guidebooks, we make TV shows, we make our radio shows, uh, we promote travel. Um, it's heartbreaking not to be able to provide this employment to our guides. It is really heartbreaking, and uh, I w I can't tell you what a high I was on with all of our guides in town, and, and we had this spree de corps. And we were just so good. We were so ready and we were going to do all of this. And then uh, we fly home and everything grinds to a halt. Uh, it's just, it's just horrible. Um, I don't know what the, uh, you know, it's not, it's just not fair that some people have employment and other people don't. Uh, it's not fair that revenue grinds to a halt when you did nothing wrong. You know, the last revenue I got was in October as a tour company. So I got to keep my team together. You know, we spent, uh, invested a lot of money bringing everybody over. We expected to have a great year and uh, have guides. You know, our concern was how do we keep, how do we have enough guides for this thing? That was our big concern was, do we have enough guides for the demand? And suddenly we don't. So it's, um, I'm unusual as a tour company because I'm privately held. If I was publicly held, all the profit would have been dispersed by, to the stockholders, right? And you can't call up the stockholders and say, ah, you know, things are not good anymore. We, won't, we need that profit back. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, uh, I'm glad I'm pub privately held so that, you know, I can keep my team together. Um, but uh, my, my, uh, my big question is how long is this zero revenue going to last? And, uh, and, uh, I look out and I see the same thing happening with, with uh, arts centers, with theaters, uh, you know, with with schools, with sports, with everything requires a crowd. That's the sad thing to me. In order to be viable, in order to be employ people well, to be profitable, and to offer a quality product for a good price, that's those are all the things you got to be able to do. You got to pack the house. You got to fill the plane, fill the hotel, fill the restaurant, fill the tour bus, fill the stadium, fill the concert hall. And as long as people can't gather, 
there's a reality here and uh you got to produce to have, to have money in the united states where we've got this um ability to bail people out and provide unemployment to people who used to work in hotels and restaurants that aren't in business anymore but that can't go on forever something's got to um we've got to start producing and that really worries me it really worries me i'm i'm hoping i can survive for a couple of years you know maybe as a final question you see travel as a political act that's also the title of one of your books in which you really make an effort to make americans travel now, after 9-11, it seemed that you attempted to convince people that they needed to travel more and not less, even though, of course, terrorism attracts not just in the United States, but also in Europe had everybody sort of uh, avoid from traveling. The corona pandemic is a completely different beast, um, with the main advice being to sort of stay at home, don't meet anyone. Now, how do you, how do you see this advice and how do you take this as somebody... But especially in this sort of highly divided political climate, your advice has always been for people to travel, to, to meet other people. Your your whole entire philosophy is based around that. How, how do you take that, that people sort of have to stay at home now? I have no problem with it. There's a more fundamental challenge now than keeping my business alive. And that's getting over this crisis, this virus. I don't want people to travel now, frankly. Uh, I want us to get a a handle on this virus so we can travel in the near future. Patience is not an American forte. You know, if, if we have an economic policy and it's, and it's necessary and it's smart and it's, we vote for it and it's, it's an investment, it's, it's, it's good economic hygiene, and two years later, we're not all doing just great. We elect somebody else and then we throw that out the door and we try something different. You know, you got to Embrace the truth, and then you got to be patient and wait for it to take hold. Um, in the United States, everything is about the quarterly profit statement with no regard for sustainability. It, people jump around with their investments, and they just want to be faster than everybody else and more nimble than everybody else and screw the future. Uh, this is not a good prescription for anybody's financial well-being down the road. Uh, but that's the problem we've got now with the mania of quarterly profit statements and the dishonest way we do accounting where we don't have to pay for um, the long-term consequences of our business. This last year I gave myself a self-imposed carbon tax just to try to help my company be carbon neutral and we invested we invested a million dollars in 10 organizations working to mitigate climate change in the developing world. Very proud of that and then I this year we we're going to tell every all of our travelers you know we're paying for the to mitigate the carbon you, you create by flying to Europe and back. Um, so you don't shame people out of flying. You just pay the, the fee so that you can fly in a carbon neutral kind of way. It's nothing heroic. It's what we should be taxed on anyways, because we're producing that carbon and it's our responsibility and we're not doing anything to help. We're just cutting how we hurt, you see, but it's a good step and it's a reasonable step to expect other tour organizers to do that. And we were doing it. I'm going to do it this year, <clears throat> but in a scaled down way, because it's supposed to be a function of $30 per traveler that we put on our tours and this year. 30 times zero is not a lot of money, you know. Um, but um, uh, I just think that um, going forward, all the, the whole uh, reality has changed. Things that seemed common sense and things that seemed fair last year, right now, everything is upended. Uh, and it's easy to feel like a victim, but when you look out 
everybody's a victim. So again, do I want people to travel? Well, of course I want people to travel. Uh, but do I want to encourage them to travel prematurely? No, my problems are not as bad as society's problems right now. And America's problems are not as bad as the developing world's problems right now. So I'm approaching life now more as a citizen than as a tour organizer, more as a, a, a caring neighbor uh, than as a businessman. And I've got a responsibility and I've got some wherewithal to contribute in, in ways that I'm excited about and I want to do the ethical thing. But my initiative right now is not everybody get out and travel. I mean, I'm not going to be the first tour company out of the gate. I don't, my, what Rick Steves travel is, is not social distancing. Rick Steves Europe travel is the opposite of social distancing. You go to France to be kissed on the cheeks. You go to Italy to pack into the piazza and then lick an ice cream cone as you're doing the passeggiata. You know, you go to Bavaria to, to slide on, that, on those benches until you get slivers in your butt, drinking beer and clinking those, uh, those steins and having fun with new friends. You go to a pub in Ireland, annoying that, uh, what do they say, uh, strangers are just friends who've yet to meet. It's all about people. If I think of uh, my work, uh, you know, uh, what, what distinguishes a good trip, whether it's a TV show, a guidebook, or uh, uh, one of our tours, or just my own vacation, the, the success of the experience is really how many people did you connect with, not how many cliches did you see on stage. So if there's, there's going to be an interim period, I, I really think that things are going to open up they're going to open up. Uh, first, it's going to be people traveling locally, I think. Um, you know, Bavarians hiking in the foothills of the Alps, uh, Romans going to the Tuscan hill towns, uh, French going to the French Riviera. So individuals locally, then individuals internationally, and then last, sadly, things will be stable enough and reliable enough for us to put together buses sold to Americans to fly across the Atlantic and meet in Amsterdam or Paris or Berlin or whatever, and then do their trip. Uh, and there's going to be that interim period where everybody's going to want to go, let's get going again. And I just want to take a pause. I mean, America's trying to start up professional baseball, and they've got this truncated little season and playing to empty stadiums. And just yesterday, one of the teams has 14 cases of corona, 14 cases, and they all fly home, and that's the end of that. I don't want to have the tour bus equivalent of that by being impatient so it's going to take a while and uh it's kind of that's leadership and that's honesty just to to be straight about that and not let my eagerness to start making money again or my eagerness to start employing our guides again get in the way of that common sense patience um, it's a real difficult thing it's heartbreaking it is heartbreaking that was Rick Stees, everybody. Very glad to have had him on the show. Now, over the past few months, I've been looking for and asking tour guides from all around the world for a definitive advocacy of tourism and travel. Like, what are we missing out on now that we can travel? And I think for Rick, traveling literally is a way to make the world a better place. I highly encourage you to read the New York Times article written about him last year, but maybe even more insightful was reading his book, Travel as a Political Act. It was originally written in 2009, but recently updated to make it more suitable for readers during the age of Trump, I'd say. 
Of course, there was lots more I wanted to speak about with Rick, for example, about the environmental aspect of traveling, the cruise ship industry, the difference between hedonism and seeing the world, and if he ever thinks about his legacy as a travel guru. But maybe we get to talk again in the future. I want to sincerely thank Jim McDonough and Haley Reinhold for setting up this conversation. Uh, and as I mentioned, there is an extended version of this interview that includes the president of the Berlin Guides Association, Matt Robinson. You can find the link to the video conference and many, many more interesting links in the show notes. On Friday, we're back with Margaret Stockton Davies from London. For a lot of people in America in particular, which is obviously where my experience comes from, uh, the whole idea of like kings and queens and princesses and castles, it's very much fairy tale uh, and also a lot of... I'd say American ideology is based on the fact that, you know, we rejected all of that, that, you know, we, we decided we didn't want that. We rebelled against it. And so we've created something totally different. The Low Season is produced by me, Wouter Bernhardt. Music is by Mark Schilders. Artwork is by CeCe White. Georgia Riungu is the Low Season's media mogul. Speak soon, my friends. I was with other Americans up there who didn't have a clue. They were not touched by it. They didn't notice those tears. They didn't understand the context. They were just bummed out because the air conditioning was not working or they wanted a ice, ice cubes in their Coca-Cola or their batteries were running out. And I just thought, I'm living in a dumbed-down society. I don't want to live in a dumbed-down society. And there's powerful people in the United States that would find it convenient and more profitable if we were all just dumbed down, mindless producer-consumers. And I vowed right then and there in my own little world as a travel writer and a tour guide that I'm going to expect my travelers, my viewers, my readers to be smartened up, to be engaged. And I'm not going to dumb them down.